Thank you, Graham. We got our money's worth with uh, that reading from you this morning. Thank you. So as we uh, reflect on this incredible story, let's pray together. Lord God, it's so easy when we hear stories like this one to uh, treat it almost as if it's a fairy tale rather than real life. And yet, what it describes is very, very real. And there are brothers and sisters of ours who face exactly this kind of thing in our world today. And so, Lord, if there is any complacency here among us, I pray that you would jolt us out of it and awake us to the life and death nature of our faith. And I pray that you would give us courage and boldness to to stand with you and for you when it seems like everything around us is pressuring us to bow the knee to the things of this world. We ask this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. The Roman Empire prided itself on being the most tolerant, liberal, and enlightened civilization of the world when it came to the freedom of religion. It was perfectly happy to add Jesus to its large pantheon of gods. But it took exception to the exclusivity of Christianity. You see, it was fine to worship Jesus, just not to say that he was the embodiment of the one and only true God. And so in the year 155 AD, the Christian bishop, Polycarp, was given a very simple and clear choice. Offer a pinch of incense on the altar to Caesar and say, Caesar is Lord, or die. And Polycarp replied, Eighty and six years have I served Christ, and he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king? and my saviour. He chose death and was tortured and burned alive. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was born into a well-educated German family. He was a very bright student, completing his doctorate at the age of 21. In 1931, he became a lecturer in theology at the University of Berlin. When, in January 1933, the Nazis rose to power, Bonhoeffer was one of the first to raise the alarm. Later that year, Hitler imposed new church elections in an attempt to get his people into the right places. Subsequently, pastors of Jewish descent, or those married to non-Aryans, were defrocked, kicked out of the church. Later, all that Jewish nonsense in the Old Testament was discarded. Just for clarity, that's not my point of view, that's the Nazi point of view. Just making that clear. Bonhoeffer, with others, broke away from the state church to form a new confessing church. But his resistance cost him dearly. First, he lost his job as lecturer in the University of Berlin. Later, he was imprisoned, and about two weeks before the end of the war, he was hanged. Last month, I was part of a webinar with Open Doors, who we uh, pray for and who is one of our mission partners. 
uh, and they were talking about persecution uh, among believers in Sri Lanka. Uh, and uh, as part of this webinar, there were kind of people from, from Sri Lanka that were kind of sharing with us. And one of the local pastors from a church there, uh, a very poor area where people are very dependent on support from the government and other relief organizations, told us about a family in his church. They didn't have a proper place to live, so an organization stepped forward to construct a house for them. They started building, and were just about to put the roof on when they asked the family, where should we put the statue of Buddha? It was a Buddhist organization, so if they wanted the house, they said, you need the statue of Buddha in it. Where should we put it? Well, the family took a stand for Jesus, and they refused to display the statue. Building work stopped, and they're still without a proper house. Why do I start this way? Because for a long time in this country, we've been used to living in a culture that's either had a fairly positive or at least a fairly benign relationship between uh, the culture at large and the church. But that hasn't been the case for many Jesus followers throughout history, and it isn't the case for many Jesus followers today. So Open Doors estimates that one in seven Christians around the world today face high levels of persecution. Now, there's probably about, I don't know, at least 70 of you in this room right now, probably, probably a few more. So let's just say that there are 70 of you. 10 of you would be facing extreme persecution. But more than that, as those stories of Polycarp and Bonhoeffer and that family in Sri Lanka show, Compromise is cheap, but conviction is costly. So let's just uh, go and set the scene to this story in Daniel 3 a little bit. So we're, we were introduced to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego last week in uh, chapter 1. Uh, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, as they were formerly called. And they were three promising Jewish boys who had been plucked from the ruined city of Jerusalem and transported several hundred miles to Babylon to be brainwashed and, uh, and then groomed for government service. They were given new names, seeking to erase their links with their former lives and forge new Babylonian identities. King Nebuchadnezzar's strategy was simple. It was subjugation by assimilation. In other words, you take the youth of the professional classes and uh, you ensure that they grow up in the culture, they get the right education, and in a generation or two, they're not resisting because they're part of the system. And at first, things seem to go okay for Daniel and his friends. At the end of chapter 1, we're told that Daniel and his friends excelled in their training. So uh, this is what it says right at the end of chapter 1. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. But when the king erects a golden statue 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide, and tells everyone to bow down and worship it, 
they soon run into trouble. We're not told what the image was of. Is it an image of the king? Is it an image of one of the Babylonian deities? We're not told. We're not told why King Nebuchadnezzar set it up. Was it to mark a special occasion? Uh, we're not told that. We're, we're not told exactly what the gathered masses were expected to do in worship of this statue, just that they're to fall down and worship it as soon as you hear the music play. But what we do need to know is that this is a defining moment, a time of decision. Daniel and his friends might have been in Babylon, but they knew they weren't of Babylon. For Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the command to bow down to this statue crossed a red line. They couldn't do it. They wouldn't do it, even on penalty of death. And so as we look at this story in our time together this morning, I want to just draw out three things in particular. First, the pressure to conform Second, the pushback from conviction. And third, the prospect of costly obedience. So first, the pressure to conform. It is impossible, I think, to overemphasize how much pressure Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would have been under to follow the crowd and bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's statue. And there are several hints of this in the way that Daniel tells the story. First, there's just the sheer size of this statue. It's 90 feet tall. So to put that into perspective, that's the length of an adult blue whale. That is the height of two brachiosaurs stood one, top, one on top of the other. If you're standing there at the bottom of it, how do you think you're going to feel? intimidated. You're going to feel really, really small, aren't you? And we're told, secondly, about the blazing furnace an incredible eight times in the story. And that's not pointless repetition. It's to drive home a point. Why do you repeat something? To emphasize it. Why do you repeat something? You didn't get it. Okay. Third, we're told three times about the vast assembly of satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials. And again, it's not artless repetition. What he's trying to do is make you think, okay, this is a coronation. This is the kind of pomp and circumstance of the state opening of parliament. That's the kind of occasion we're talking about here. And dedicating this statue is a huge state occasion, and it's accompanied by the music of a colossal orchestra. And I could hear you tittering as it was repeated each time, all the lithers and zyres and everything else. What's the point of that? The point of it is you've got the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra playing. And when you hear it play, you get on your knees. This huge public spectacle, carefully choreographed to, to uh, display the unity of the Babylonian Empire around a common religion, a common object of worship. That's what this was. So was there pressure to conform? You bet there was. This is groupthink writ large. Who in their right mind would remain standing up with all of that pressure on them? 
you know, I think the closest kind of modern-day equivalent that I can think of is the Nuremberg rallies in Germany. You know, can you imagine the crowds, thousands and thousands of people, all throwing up their hands, shouting, Heil Hitler, and you don't. That's what it would have been like. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, aren't, they're not just trying to swim against the tide, they're trying to swim up Niagara Falls. And what's more, let's remember, they've, they've got pretty good jobs in the Babylonian civil service. They've actually got a lot to lose. So what should they do? And I can imagine their think, thought processes. Well, they might be thinking, perhaps I should just bow down and worship the image for fear of being thrown into the fiery furnace. I mean, God's merciful, right? He would understand, he would forgive me. Besides, he, he knows my situation. He, he wouldn't want my kids to be without a father, my wife to be without a husband. Uh, perhaps they think, well, uh, perhaps I should just bow down with everyone else, but kind of cross my fingers behind my back. I mean, obviously everyone else would, you know, would look to everyone else like I was bowing down and worshipping, but God would know, so maybe that's okay. You can imagine the kind of thoughts that are going through their minds, can't you? And we come up with lots of ways that we can try and justify our compromise. But these three men just won't go there. We might not be commanded to bow down and worship a 90-foot statue but don't think that we're not under similar pressures to conform. Of course we are. For some of us in the business world, that might mean uh, trying to keep up by being just as cutthroat, just as ruthless, just as barely legal as our competitors. A, a friend of mine was a, an engineer at a big company and he was told off to sign, on, sign off on some fraudulent documents. He said, I'm not going to do it. His boss said, well, you can either do it, or you can resign, or you can be fired. He resigned. He had a wife, two kids. I'm not going to do it. For others, the pressure to conform might look like getting drunk with the lads, sleeping around before marriage, spending off money feathering our own nests, wearing a rainbow lanyard at work. Fill in the gap. What is it? And so, application number one, where are the pressure points in your life at the moment? Where do you feel pressure to conform to the world's agenda, to the world's expectations of you that run contrary to God's word and God's will? Number two, the pushback from conviction. So the command is given, the music starts, and everyone bows down before this image. Everyone except these three young Jewish men. Daniel tells us that they're denounced by some Chaldean astrologers in verse 8, and then they're hauled up before the king on three charges. First, showing contempt for the king's authority. Second, serving, not serving the king's gods. Third, not bowing down to the king's image. And Nebuchadnezzar is livid. How dare they undermine him? How dare they spoil his big day? But in his mercy, he decides to give these Jewish boys one last chance. But perhaps he didn't understand me. 
I said, when the music starts, your face hits the dust. Okay, capiche? And so he boils it down really simply. You can bow down or you can burn in this furnace. What are you going to choose? What God will be able to rescue from my hand? The question gets at the heart of the story's theological teaching. You see, although we're certainly meant to see these three young Jewish boys, uh, men as role models of faithful resistance, the real hero of the story is the God who makes their resistance possible. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, they say, we don't need to explain ourselves to you. We know that the God we worship is able to save us from this certain death, but we also know that he may not choose to. And even if he doesn't choose to, we're still not going to bow down to anything or anyone but him. We will not turn our backs on God, even if it costs us our life. You see, what mattered most to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego was their relationship with God. God's word. And God's word said this, Exodus 20. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any other likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. In other words, God's saying, I'm God. I'm the one God here. You mustn't treat anyone or anything else as a God. You mustn't give them your love, your loyalty, your obedience. So is God's word the hill that we will die on too? Tremper Longman, a biblical scholar, explains, they're being told to demote their God, the one who created them, by not giving him their exclusive worship. They're also to worship a statue of a God they know does not exist. They cannot simply rationalize their actions because the act of bowing down and worship indicates that they affirm the statue as equal to their gods. By accepting this statue into the category of deity, they will inevitably reduce the ultimacy, authority, and jurisdiction of the true God and demote him in such a way that will make him out to be no more than one of the deities of the polytheistic world. To put it really simply, they understood that compromise meant contradiction. Diminishment meant denial. Reduction meant rejection. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's conviction that Yahweh is the one true God meant that they knew they couldn't be faithful to him and bow the knee to this statue at the same time. A choice had to be made, albeit one with really severe consequences. Now, we in the modern United Kingdom aren't being asked to bow down to a 90-foot statue. The threat of idolatry that we face here and now is much more subtle. The American theologian Paul Tillich explains that a, a person's God is whatever is of, of the ultimate concern to them. I, anything, whatever the thing or person is, 
that you're most concerned about, that you think the most about, that affects your life the most, whatever is on the throne of your lives, whatever you look to for your identity, for your value, that's your God, whether you think of it that way or not. And it's hard for us uh, in the modern 21st century Britain to identify, I think, with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But the pressure to dilute our, the distinctiveness of our faith is an enduring one. To be quite frank, the image that you and I are most tempted to bow down to is the one we see reflected back to us in the mirror. Postmodern societies like ours have tried to do away with God, and in the absence of any ultimate reality or uh, universal truth, it's insisted that we make our own meaning. You do you. Be true to yourself. Follow your heart. But do you see what they reflect about who or what is on the throne of our lives? Ourselves. Heaven forbid that we should do God, be true to God, follow God's heart. And so application number two, is there any area of your life where you need to push back against the temptation to compromise your loyalty to God above all other things? And if so, what might that look like for you? Third, the the prospect of costly obedience. So to say that uh, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't take the response of these three Jewish men well is just a little bit of an understatement. He's so furious that he orders the furnace to be heated up seven times hotter than usual. And in fact, we're told that it's so hot that the flames kill the executioners. So this story reminds us that the cost of conviction isn't just hypothetical. Today, real people, your brothers and sisters in the faith, are being mocked, shunned, cast out from their families, unfairly treated, imprisoned, assaulted, and killed for their faith in Jesus. That's happening today. Daniel 3 teaches us that we must not only resist compromise, but that the cost of our conviction may actually be our lives, just as it is for many brave believers in places like North Korea or Yemen or Somalia or Eritrea. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're not wet behind the ears. They know that the king is going to follow through on his threat. And we mustn't let our familiarity with the story cloud our vision. Because we know about their miraculous deliverance. They don't. They knew that God was able to save them, but they didn't presume that he would. These three Jewish men trusted in the power of God to save them either from death or through death. Uh, you know, John Calvin, um, the great reformer, he pointed out, for instance, that if he wanted to, God was perfectly capable of sending a localized downpour to extinguish the flames so that they wouldn't get thrown in it in the first place. That's not how he chose to save them. God rescued them, all right, but not before they were thrown into the furnace. And the story of Daniel 3 reminds us 
that principle comes at a price. And the point is not that God will save every faithful person from suffering and death. That's just not true. That's, we see that from the stories of martyrs like Stephen in the book of Acts, like Polycarp, like Bonhoeffer, like our brothers and sisters around the world today. The cost of conviction for us may not be our lives, but it may well be our livelihoods. So last year, for instance, police fined Isabel Vaughan Spruce and prevented her from praying silently in the vicinity of an abortion clinic in Birmingham. Uh, In March of last year, Dr. Aaron Edwards was sacked from his role as lecturer at a Methodist Bible college in Derbyshire for publishing a tweet expressing his dismay at the widespread acceptance of homosexual activity in the church. So the fact is that the cost of conviction can be very high. And yet what this story shows us so clearly is that God is more than able to underwrite those costs. God is able to save us from even the very worst repercussions that result from our loyalty to him. If not in this life, in the life to come. So Jesus told his disciples, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And that's possible for us because as Paul says in Romans 8, though we may be considered as sheep for the slaughter, yet nothing, nothing, nothing in all creation, not even death itself, can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so there will be times when staying faithful to Jesus in a faithless culture will cost us. And as Malcolm Muggeridge once said, the only fish that goes with the stream is the dead fish. The costs will be different for each of us. Few of us, I imagine, here will be asked to resist to the point of death like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But there may be some of us for whom faithfulness could mean the loss of money, the loss of a job, For many, if not all, faithfulness may mean being understood, misunderstood, being called names, perhaps even the breakdown of a friendship. Paul called it straight when he said in in, in 2 Timothy, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You're following a crucified Messiah isn't easy. Jesus himself said, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, I'll persecute you also. You see, Jesus is our ultimate role model for faithful resistance. You don't need to die, Jesus, Peter said. You can avoid the cross. You can rule just like every other king. But he didn't. What did he say? Get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of of God, but the things of man. Jesus was put on trial for claiming to be the Messiah. He could have rode back his claims. He could have said, you know what? Tell you what, I won't do anything here in Jerusalem so I can do something locally in Galilee. How about just let me get on with my business in Galilee and we won't worry about Jerusalem. Is that okay? But he didn't. On the night of his rest, Jesus 
could have slipped off quietly into the throngs of Passover pilgrims who had come to Jerusalem for the great festival, who had camped out on the Mount of Olives. He could have avoided for all time his date with the cross. But he didn't. And aren't you glad he didn't? Because if he had preferred his comfort to the cost of staying true to God's plan, we wouldn't be here today. There would be no Christchurch. We would still be dead in our sins. Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Jesus experienced the ultimate cost of staying true to the one true God. But unlike them, Jesus didn't emerge from his furnace unscathed. God didn't save Jesus from death. God saved Jesus through death. That's what the word resurrection means. So you see, we don't just follow a crucified Messiah, we follow a crucified and risen Messiah who still bears the scars of his suffering in his risen body. And that is what should give us the courage to take up our own crosses because we believe we are meant to be people who believe in the resurrection, that death is not the end, that faithfulness to God is not a zero-sum game. So application number three is, are you willing to count the cost of your obedience to God? Are you willing to prioritize faithfulness over safety? Are you willing to pray, God, I don't care what the price is. Living in step with you is worth more. Nebuchadnezzar says, no other God can save in this way. Well, too right there isn't. No other God can save his people from certain death in a blazing furnace, let alone a blazing furnace that's heated up seven times hotter than normal. No other God saves his people from the furnace by first making them pass through the furnace. And there's certainly no other God who would condescend to be in the flames with us. Yet that is our God. When we suffer for Christ's sake, we participate in his sufferings. When we count the cost of exclusive loyalty to King Jesus, we experience an ever deeper fellowship with King Jesus. When we suffer for the sake of our obedience to God, we don't go anywhere that God himself has not gone first. And so the heart and soul of this story isn't the bravery of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but the surpassing worth of the God who is able to save us either from the fire or through the fire. The God who alone deserves our love, our loyalty, our obedience, our worship, our praise as the creator and king of the universe. The God who doesn't just lift his people from the fire, but who meets us in the fire. Yes, that other person in the fire points us to Jesus, who experiences the fire of God's judgment for us. So that when we put our trust in him, not a hair of our heads will be scorched. 
nor our robes singed, nor the faintest smell of the fires of hell be found anywhere near us. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego resist, not simply because God says so, but because God's word is their delight. And because God himself is their very life. And so, I just want to invite us now to a time to respond to God's word. This is a really challenging, powerful, inspiring story. But it's not just a story. God's word is living and active and it's meant to speak to us here today. What's God saying to you? Well, perhaps some of us here this morning, frankly, we need to fall on our knees before God and confess that we've sold out. That we've compromised our faith. That we've bowed down to that big statue. And we need to say sorry. Uh, Before the service, one of the um, words of scripture that, that came to mind as we were praying, was um, from Revelation 2, verse 20, where Jesus is speaking to um, one of the churches in a place called Theatra, and he says this, Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. Uh, And she was known for kind of uh, false teaching and leading Christians into all kinds of immoral behavior. Just that word tolerate. You You tolerate this woman Jezebel. Perhaps some of us are tolerating something that we know goes against God. And some of us here perhaps have made an an idol out of safety, out of security, out of comfort, and we need to dethrone that idol. Our goal isn't safety as the world understands it. Rather, the safest place on earth is to be in the center of God's will. And for others of us, perhaps the Lord is beginning to highlight an area of your life where you might need to push back against the pressure to conform. To conform to an agenda other than God's. And perhaps he's wanting to embolden you for that. Still others may feel themselves to be in a furnace of testing right now. In which case, as I was preparing for this morning, if that is you, if you are in that furnace, I just feel like these words are for you from Isaiah 43. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. What's the Lord saying to you? And what are you going to do about it? Let's take some time and quiet to be with you to speak to us.